Hello and welcome back to From My Mom's Basement. I'm your host, David Chamberlain, and this is episode 31 of the podcast, titled The Masterpiece, written by myself. Thank you all for listening. Today, he'll try to finish his masterpiece, a big old painting he's been tinkering on for nearly a decade. But now he sits on the patio of his favorite cafe, a cafe that's just across the street from his atelier, and waits for his manager to arrive. He wears his trademark ensemble, paint-speckled blue jeans, an oversized plaid button-down, and Velcro sandals. He's kind of out of place here. The patrons of this particular cafe wear sundresses and suit coats. But he's an artist, so he's afforded certain fashion discretions. He sips his coffee, black and smoky, and visualizes the last strokes of his painting. It should be pretty simple, the completion of the thing. Just a couple minor paint strokes and it'll be wrapped up. But something worries him. Something makes him believe that it'll be impossible to actually finish the damn painting, as if the world will burst into flames before he can slather on the finishing touches. The cafe's busy this morning. A table full of young, smartly dressed women sit close to the painter, laughing over mimosas and speaking at increasingly high volumes. They chatter excitedly, as though everything they share is a half-secret. The painter is annoyed. He's really trying to focus right now. See, he's trying to finish a painting that will change the very course of art history. No one at this cafe seems to appreciate the genius that's at work in his mind. He looks above the chatty Cathy's, across the street and three stories up, to where his atelier is. Right now, its windows are flat, black blocks reflecting scant slivers of sunlight. He tries to get a look inside the windows, tries to see the silhouette of his great nine-foot-tall canvas. It's there, in his atelier, in just about an hour or so, that his great master project will finally come to its conclusion. But the painter feels an unusual distance between himself and his studio this morning, as if he's been evicted from it, and, upon trying to get inside, will find his key unable to turn the lock. He's really unsure if this painting will ever be completed, He imagines the finished thing sitting at the end of a vast tunnel, a tunnel that's telescoping longer and longer, and the painting is steadily moving away from him into a distant darkness. He sips his coffee. A few minutes later, the painter's manager comes strolling up the cobblestone avenue towards the cafe. He wears a fine, white linen suit that's heavily wrinkled around the elbows and knees. He doesn't wear a tie. A small cigar dangles out of the corner of his mouth, puking out thin curtains of smoke. The painter stands and waves his manager over. Here, Charlie, the painter says. Right here. The manager turns, smiles. His yellow teeth grip his cigar like the tips of rotten fingernails. He limbos between the cafe tables towards his painter. Morning, Hank, the manager says, pulling his cigar from his teeth. He extends his arms in a cruciform gesture, looking for a hug. Morning, the painter says, giving his manager a quick, emotionless embrace. Thanks for coming. They sit. Fine day today, the manager says, looking over at the table of talkative young women. Sure is, the painter says, looking up at the sky. A few meager clouds, thin and wispy like dust bunnies, freckle the otherwise clear blue sky. Yeah, it's a real nice day. The manager gets the attention of one of the young women, winks at her. She blanches, rolls her eyes, and turns away from the ugly, graying old man. The painter sighs. Do you want some coffee, Chuck? The painter asks, trying to lasso his manager's attention away from the women. 
Sure, the manager says. Hungry, too. Could eat something. You want to eat? Uh, I'm okay. You sure? I gotta be honest with you, Hank. You're wasting away. You don't look too good. Yeah, wasting away. I'm fine, Chuck. The manager shrugs. Suit yourself. The painter watches quietly as his manager waves over a server and orders a double espresso, two eggs over easy, two pieces of sourdough toast, three sausage links, and a crepe. A crepe that's really just a shuttle for Nutella. So, tell me about this, the manager says, threading his knobby fingers together. You're painting. Uh, you think it's done? Oh, yeah, the painter says, nodding. Well, almost. It's... I mean, it should be finished today. This is that, uh, that big mountain scene, right? Yeah. The manager claps. The sound is bright and snappy and makes cafe patrons whip their heads around. Well, this is great news, the manager says. I'll, uh, I'll get in touch with the folks at the gallery. The painter swallows. The image of the painting in the tunnel, the ever-lengthening tunnel, crosses his mind. Well, hold on, he says. It's, it's not exactly finished yet. The manager furrows his porcupine brows. Well, why am I here then? Why'd you call me here if it's not finished? The painter sighs. I don't know. Look, it'll be done today. I've just, I've been working on this one for a long time. I mean, you know that, since before the Miami exhibition, remember? The manager widens his eyes, taps some cigar ash onto the ground, and whistles in amazement. Ah, that's a long time. Must be one hell of a painting. Well, yeah, I, I think so, the painter says. It's, it's my best. Hank Pension's best work, huh? Well, that's a tall order. Well, you're just nervous to finish it, is all. You don't want your baby to get criticized. The painter nods. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's probably right, but there's, there's something more than that. What? I, I don't know. The manager frowns and takes a big rip from his cigar, sucking in his cheeks. Smoke blooms from his nostrils, curly and white like Santa's beard, and tumbles to the table of young women. From there, it tentacles into thin strands of mist and snakes through the air towards the painter's atelier. The painter watches the smoke on its journey, believes that it's trying to tell him something. Maybe it's a sign, a clue, a portent. The server returns to the table now, arms full of the manager's food. Want another coffee? The manager asks. Uh, no, I'm fine, thanks. The manager stamps out his little cigar in the table's ashtray, a glass ashtray which refracts gold swords of sunlight onto the table and goes to work on his eggs, slurping up the soggy membranes like oyster flesh. Listen, kid, the manager says between sloppy bites. I'm gonna talk to Michelle at the gallery today. Tell her you finished up your big thing, okay? You just focus on putting on the final touches, yeah? Yeah, Chuck. The painter says, folding his arms. He speaks like an adolescent. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll figure it out. Well, we should celebrate, the manager says. We should order some champagne, huh? The manager looks to the table of young women. Hey, girls, what'd you say to having some champagne with us? No, Chuck, the painter says, too embarrassed to even look at the women. Please, don't, don't, please, Chuck. The young women drop into a kind of confused silence. Their eyes dart amongst themselves and then to the dirty old manager. One flosses her teeth with her tongue. Well, this guy's a famous artist, 
the manager says, gesturing to the painter like a used car salesman. He just finished his masterpiece today. Look him up. Hank Pension. Look him up. Famous. He's in all the biggest places. Auctioned at Sotheby's. Famous. Famous. This piques one of the girl's interest. Yeah? She asks. She runs her eyes over the painter. That particular painting isn't finished, the painter says, avoiding eye contact. Not, not yet, anyway. Oh, he's a somber guy, isn't he? The manager asks the girls, laughing. What do you say, huh? How about some bubbly? The women, although maybe a little softened up, politely decline the manager's invitation and, relatively soon after the awkward exchange, leave the cafe, speaking in hushed, kind of disturbed tones. Why'd you have to do that? The painter asks, shaking his head. I was being friendly. You, you made them uncomfortable. The manager leans back in his chair and raises his hands as if at gunpoint. Okay, okay. So no champagne, then? The painter shakes his head. Kind of growling deep in his throat like a depressed pig, the manager finishes his eggs and slips another cigar from his breast pocket. He rolls it in his fingers while he searches for his matches. He finally finds them in his back pants pocket. They're in a flimsy matchbook, probably picked up from a bar somewhere, and strikes three of them at once, holding their combined flame against the tip of the cigar. He pops his lips to help the cigar take the flame. The painter watches this whole ceremony with a dreary, unamused expression, his shoulders hunched, his chin nearly touching the tabletop. I, I really better get back up there to my studio, the painter says. I, I feel like if I don't go right now, I might never be able to again. The manager yanks his cigar, which is now puffing like a Victorian smokestack, from his mouth and smiles. Ooh, do what you need to, kid. You're the artist, after all. But I'm, uh, I'm still speaking with Michelle today. Understand? Yeah, the painter says. Copy that. Hey, uh, do you think I can have that? The painter points to the matchbook on the table. Uh, yeah, sure, the manager says picking up the matches and tossing them to the painter. The painter snags them, stands, says, Thanks for meeting me today, Chuck. I think you gave me the confidence boost I, uh, I needed. Yeah, I think I'll be able to finish the thing. The painter claps his manager on the shoulder and moves past him towards the atelier. The patrons of the cafe, half amused by the painter's attire, give the artist sidelong glances as he wanders off the patio. Crossing the street, the painter feels as though he's just stepped over a threshold, a kind of spiritual threshold that he'll never be able to walk back through. He's stuck in this new place, wherever that is, and everything he's ever known, his life, his art, his thoughts, his opinions, are still back on the other side of that spiritual doorstep, waiting for him, waiting for their old owner who will never return. Here it is, his atelier, and his painting the nine-foot canvas that haunts his waking thoughts. Flipping on the lights, the painter steps to the center of his studio. Raw, wood-paneled flooring creaks beneath his boots. A complex array of lights, high-powered incandescent bulbs, flicker and pulse to life, drowning the atelier in a blinding, inorganic glow. This artist has never cared about natural light. It's a mess, the atelier. Big carts, like something a flight attendant might push, stand in the corners of the studio, buried beneath paints and jugs of acetone and dirty rags that belong in a mechanic's garage. Canvases, everywhere canvases, are stacked like so many books in a used bookstore. Some are finished, some are almost complete, and others are hardly even begun. There are varying sizes, the canvases, 
but mostly around three by four feet, nothing like the nine-foot behemoth that hangs starkly against one wall. Ugh, the painter grumbles, looking up at his masterpiece, shaking his head. He ambles away from the painting and moves to the one window in the studio. Looking through the dusty pane, the painter sees the cafe is still busy. This is a great relief. He finally feels alone. Sitting below this window is a small mini-fridge, dented and scratched from years of loving use. The painter swings the fridge open and pulls out a diet soda. He drinks the soda and sighs and moves back to face his masterwork. So, this is what the painting looks like. It's a landscape, at its most basic level, a vibrant depiction of a mountain range at sunset. But, upon closer inspection, you can find all the typical Panchonian trademarks. For example, along the lower ridgeline of the mountain range, you can spy a train of 19th century American cavalrymen, followed by covered wagons and foot soldiers, moving up a dirt mountain trail. Dead natives litter the ground they tread, their bodies sprawled out and twisted up like ragdolls. This is a staple of Hank Pension's work, Old West Violence. Here, in his masterwork, we have three tableaus of the Old West all crammed into one. The first tableau is the one which I just described, the Union cavalry brutalizing a native tribe. Then, moving left, just below the foothills, we can see a group of French traders bickering with a convoy of American explorers over some beaver pelts. One of the Americans is reaching for his revolver. He doesn't see a Frenchman already has his number, his rifle zeroed in on him, ready to fire. A flat plain rolls out beyond these foothills, stretching all the way to the left edge of the painting. Here, in this plain, which shines a copperish gold in the sunset, is a camp of pioneers, dancing wildly while some members of their troop play the fiddle and guitar. Unbeknownst to these pioneers, a small party of natives is laying in wait outside their camp, ready to ambush them when night comes. Hanging on the edge of the world, the sun hovers just above the horizon. It's bloated and distorted, as if caught beneath a magnifying glass, pumping the last of its white-hot light on the earth. The tips of the mountains are purple and dark. A few stars, pinpricks of white paint, twinkle on the fringes of the night sky. It's a remarkable painting. Perhaps it is a masterwork. The painter's virtuosity is on clear display here. Between the vivid interplay of light and shadow and the emotional clarity of the characters, it's obvious that this painting was made by someone who doesn't futz around. All that being said, the painting's somewhat representational, a real what-you-see-is-what-you-get kind of painting. Pension's work has always been more or less this way, but something about this one feels almost childlike, as if he's just drawn a picture of cowboys and Indians. To the painter, there's very little here in the way of artistic or spiritual substance. He can't believe he's spent a decade working on this thing. Standing about ten paces from the painting, like a duelist before his foe, the painter sips his diet soda and sighs. He sees exactly what's left to be done. Two strokes of burnt ochre in the top left corner. That's it. Easy. With those strokes finished, the masterpiece can be carted off to a gallery and taken off his hands for good. He'll never have to face this big, ugly thing again. But the mere thought of this, the thought of his painting being seen by anyone, let alone by Weasley art critics, sickens the painter makes him want to jump off a bridge. He imagines himself, as he stands there, soda in hand, as a random patron of a random gallery. He tries to inhabit the mind of someone stumbling upon his painting for the first time. He approaches the canvas like a patron might, cocks his head, 
paces here and there, and taps a finger against his chin as though he's thinking something very profound. Like a heavy wave, every imperfection in the painting suddenly comes alive and jumps out of the image, smacking the painter upside the head. He's hurt. He might cry. He sees it all now. Every inconsistency of his brushwork, every amateurish use of color, every heavy-handed display of shadow, and every proportion that's just slightly out of whack. He thinks of pulling his eyeballs out of their sockets, or of setting himself on fire. He knows now why he feels he can't finish the painting. Once it's completed, every mediocre piece of the painting will be cemented, crystallized, solidified. All of his inadequacies will be made permanent, and his painting, as long as it is on display, will decry his lack of skill as an artist. He growls and stomps away from the painting like an angry cartoon character. Going to one of his carts cluttered with art supplies, he sets about mixing the last color of his masterpiece, burnt ochre. He does this work meticulously, like a chemist. Once he's produced the right color and texture, the painter yanks a long wooden brush from a PVC tube he's retrofitted to hold such brushes and marches back to the painting. Without looking at the canvas, the painter drags a stepladder to the left edge of the painting, scales it, saturates his brush in the ochre paint, and splotch, splotch, slaps the last two strokes unceremoniously onto the canvas. It's finished. There's nothing left to be done. The painter expects to feel some sudden sense of relief, a release of pressure maybe, or even a momentary lapse of euphoria. This painting has been ten years in the making, after all. The painter thinks some measure of joy is in order, but he feels nothing. There's only the same dull emptiness he felt before, the same emptiness he always feels. He hops off the stepladder and moves away from the painting, trying to take it all in. It's finished, all right. Nothing more to do, whether for better or worse. He drops his wet paintbrush on the hardwood, lets it roll around on the paint-stained floor, its hairy filaments still wet and goopy with ochre paint. He drops down onto the floor, sits cross-legged in a half-meditative position, and stares at his masterpiece completed. He blows air out of his mouth, lets his lips flap. So this is how he'll be remembered. This is his Guernica, his Starry Night, his Mona Lisa. As he stares at his masterwork, one word, an ugly word, which he imagines as being fecally brown and covered with boils, pops into his head. It's a word that spells a fate worse than death to artists everywhere. Mediocre. To create something that's critically defamed is not necessarily a problem. It could mean that you were pushing the envelope, stretching the medium, trying something new, inventive, dangerous. To have your work lauded as masterful is obviously a great triumph. But to have your work, especially a piece you've slaved over for years, called mediocre, to have it live in that weird space where it's neither memorable nor remarkable in any sense is perhaps the worst reception an artist could ever receive. The painter thinks it would be better to not be an artist at all than to receive such lukewarm praise. He'd rather be a dentist or an accountant than an artist whose work is just okay, just fine. That's what this masterpiece was supposed to be about rising above the sea of mediocrity, cementing himself as a supreme artist whose talent could not be disputed. Sitting in this crisscross applesauce position, the painter feels his manager's matches tug against the cotton of his blue jeans. 
feels the little wooden sticks packed like sardines, their red heads angry and ready to explode. Now he has an idea. Standing, the artist strolls to one of his supply carts, whistling a happy little tune. His mood has changed drastically. His eyes are on fire with some devious purpose. He wags his fingers over the bottles of oil and paint like a grocery shopper, looking for the most ripe tomato in the bin. When his eyes land on the object of his search, he stops whistling, grabs the thing off the cart, and tosses it in the air a couple times, juggling it like a baseball. The thing he juggles is this, a full quart of turpentine. Giggling like someone half-deranged, the painter dances back to his masterwork, hopping from one foot to the other like a child playing hopscotch. His bottle of turpentine gurgles and bubbles. I hate you, the painter says to his masterpiece. I hate you. Twisting open the quart of turpentine, the painter douses his masterwork with the paint thinner, splashing the canvas with big, arcing ropes of the oily liquid. It smacks against the canvas, making low, thumping sounds like a quiet pattering on the head of a buckskin drum. Long, glistening streaks of the turpentine run down the canvas, distorting the painting, making it almost appear as though it's melting. Dark fingers of the liquid cut through the mountains and slide over figures, darkening their faces. Once the jug of turpentine is empty, the painter lets it drop onto the ground. It bounces against the hardwood with a hollowy, plasticky sound. He pulls out his manager's matchbook, tears five or six matchsticks out, and strikes them against the scratchy comb of ceramic on the side of the matchbook. A couple of the matches snap, don't light, but three or four ignite in a wonderful bloom of orange. One, two, three. The painter tosses the matches against the canvas. Woof. The turpentine explodes into long curls of flame. The heat tickles the painter's face. The atelier glows a welcoming yellow. Flames run down the canvas like glowing strings of ivy, white hot and intricate. The faces of the Union cavalrymen and of the French traders turn charred and black like igneous rock. The mountains are scarred and darkened, and their peaks leak smoke and flames like active volcanoes. The golden plains are corrupted and scorched, turned into a vast, barren scab land. The pioneers are vaporized. Much better, the painter says, grabbing his coat and turning to leave the studio. He has no intention of putting the flame out. Now no one will ever know of his mediocrity. He has come to this conclusion. It is much better to have what might be a masterful work destroyed than to have what might be a mediocre work preserved. This is what he has chosen. This is the sacrifice he's willing to make. It's better to not exist at all, he thinks, than to be mediocre. Smiling, he leaves his atelier, thick black ribbons of smoke following him out the door. The fire was discovered rather quickly. The smoke rose through the vents in the upstairs neighbor's flooring, acrid and dark, and, without needing any more evidence of a fire, the neighbors called the fire department immediately. Thanks to this quick thinking, the fire was contained to Pension Studio. Mostly, at least. When the blaze was finally put out, not much of Hank Pension's work remained intact. The walls and ceiling of the studio were left black and flaky, like the charred skin of a burned log. The hundreds of canvases that littered his studio were little more than gray mounds of dust, piles of powder as fine as cremated remains. But hanging triumphantly, 
or perhaps defiantly, against one wall of the studio was Pension's masterwork. Its center burned out like a cannonball hole through a ship's sail. Red and smoky around the edges, the painting looked kinda like a half-burnt lasagna. The periphery of the painting had somehow survived, more or less. Things were a little singed, stained with black streaks around the edges, but the mountains were still standing, and some of the Frenchmen, although now clouded in a charcoal mist, were still trying to accomplish a trade. It was eerily, starkly beautiful, as if the remnants of the painting, the remaining figures and landscape, were trying desperately to survive. Hank's manager was quickly informed of the fire, and, along with a gallery curator and a couple other members of the art scene's hoi polloi, rushed to Hank's atelier. Hank was nowhere to be found. In fact, he would never be seen or heard from again. Many people speculate that he took off to some gated community in southern Florida. A few grainy photographs surfaced of someone who looked very much like Hank, doggy paddling in a community pool. But nothing has been corroborated. However, his nine-foot-tall, burned-out masterpiece would be seen, and would change the art world forever. His painting would be titled, The Pillaging of America, and the burned-out hole in the center erroneously interpreted as a deliberate commentary on the conquest of the American West. A new modality of art would rise as a result of the combusted masterwork, paintings in what would be referred to as the self-destructive or Penchonian movement. Painters would begin destroying what they considered to be their greatest works in an effort to show the world that it was the creation of art itself, not the reception of the art or the fame they might win, that mattered. Half the art world started busying themselves with the destruction of their greatest pieces. They'd thrash and tear and detonate and, yes, light their paintings on fire, all in an effort to evoke the same emotional response of Hank Pension's genius work stopping the destruction just before their project could be destroyed entirely. But because of this intentional salvaging of the art after some damage had been caused, these copycat artists never achieved the same danger. Hank's painting would, after going on tour through Europe and North America, end up in its own little corner of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Thousands would make the pilgrimage to see it. Thousands would read a small brass plaque nailed to the wall beside the painting a plaque that told everyone who read it that they were, indeed, looking at Hank Pension's masterpiece. Thank you all for listening. That was episode 31 of the podcast titled The Masterpiece. This episode was written, edited, produced, and narrated by myself, with the music being by... Kevin McLeod. Thank you.